Good evening. Thanks for joining us tonight. Hope you're enjoying the beautiful weekend weather. And let's take a second and look at Luke chapter 9 together. As we continue on in the book, we're looking now at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. The transfiguration. And if you're like me, you often wonder, what in the world is the purpose for the transfiguration? Uh, what is this thing all about? Well, take your Bibles and let's turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 28. And in a moment, we're going to go ahead and read those verses. But let's take a second here and pray, and then move on with our study in Luke chapter 9. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this day, for the opportunity that we have to uh, enjoy each other, uh, certainly this morning, to be encouraged by each other, and most of all, we're thankful for our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that you've given to us a certain word, a certain revelation about him, and that he in his own flesh has dwelt among us, and he has uh, revealed a more sure word than anything that has come before or anything that can come after. And we're thankful that through him, we, are, uh, we have peace with God, and we are reconciled to you. And we pray that you would help us today as we work through uh, Luke chapter 9, that you would, uh, you would assure our hearts of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And if there are some that are listening, and that have never really come to see who Jesus Christ is, the way Jesus Christ is, is revealed by you through the Word of God, I pray that you would help them today through your Spirit to see Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, the only one whom you can look down on and ultimately say on this earth that you are well pleased. And help us to come to terms with the fact that though we may want to please you, we can't do that in and of ourselves. No performance, no work, no amount of goodness that we can conjure up can ever measure to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Can ever measure to the reality of what you demand, and that is perfect holiness. But we're thankful that through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have a complete, assured, secure, uh, beautiful inheritance with you in a position through your Son. We pray that you would give us a good time in your word, help us to grow, help us to love you with all that we do and say this week, and help us to walk with our shoulders uh, high and our heads uh, firm in the reality that we are yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you're in Luke chapter 9, and we pray that you would uh, I've been praying that you'd be encouraged by uh, these words. Uh, really, before we read the passage, I just want to kind of give a, a brief introduction. Um, it's a curious thing, really, that emerges between uh, verse 27, Luke chapter 9, verse 27, and Luke chapter 9, verse 28. All uh, three synoptics have a period of time between the feeding of the 5,000 and the call to be a true follower of Jesus Christ and the episode of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. 
Mark uh, and Matthew say that there's six days. Luke says here that there are about eight days. And really, that's an easy thing to understand. Matthew and Mark are really talking about the days in between uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and the call to discipleship and the transfiguration. And Luke, quite frankly, is really including uh, those two events plus the six days in between. And so you can see that there's no uh, difference, really, in, or, or, or uh, um, reason to be critical about these things. Uh, but it's certainly just a matter of perspective. We talk like that all the time. So there's a period of time between these events, the, the feeding of the 5,000 and the call to bear the cross, remember from last week, and this event, the transfiguration. Why is that? Complete silence, nothing, nothing in between. And these events are connected in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. And that is for us to discover tonight what exactly the connection is. It's a natural question, then, that emerges from the feeding of the 5,000 and the difficult nature of the discipleship. And that question, quite frankly, is, is Jesus Christ worth it? Is he worth it? Can Jesus really save? And no doubt, as you've lived your life and you've tried to live bearing the cost of the discipleship, trying to deny ourselves for the sake of our Savior, and, and really, quite frankly, allowing that cross to be borne on us. And remember last week we said that that was the ultimate picture of submission, submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it really worth it? Is all that we're doing worth it? And that really, I believe, is the topic of discussion tonight, or the question at hand for us to discover, is following Jesus, even when it is hard, even when he tells us up front that he's going to suffer and we should follow him, and that we are going to be, we must deny ourselves, and we must bear our own cross. Is it really worth it? Well, let's read and see. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Some eight days after these things, these sayings, uh, he took, and these sayings are the reality of it's hard to be a disciple, what we just went through. He took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were walking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he, had, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but they were fully awake. They saw, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not realizing, Luke says, what he was saying. While he was saying this, that's Peter, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid. And they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things that they had seen. You see, we have a backdrop to the transfiguration, and that is in verse 28, some eight days after these sayings. These sayings are the backdrop. We have a backdrop to the transfiguration, and it is set 
in a brilliant, a vivid contrast. It's not unlike walking into a jewelry store. And if you've ever been into a jewelry store, you know that the lights are, are the highest that they can be and that there's way too many of them. It is an incredibly bright place to be. And in contrast to the bright lights, there is the black felt or the dark blue felt that's all over the cases. And between the white lights and the dark backdrop, that allows the diamond to glisten, to gleam, to cost way more than it ever should, at least from a guy's perspective. But ladies, you are certainly worth it. But the contrast could not be more vivid in a diamond store, in a jewelry store. And that is like us entering the transfiguration. Jesus just told the crowds and then followed up with his disciples that the cost of discipleship is incredibly hard. It's denying yourself. It's bearing your own cross. And remember verse 24, verse 25, and verse 26. You're not going to have control, verse 24. You're not going to have the same kind of values, verse 25. In verse 26, you're going to have a completely different authority. And so against that backdrop, and, and quite frankly, the, the, the reality that it is hard to follow Jesus Christ, we are now given the transfiguration. We're given it for an incredibly simple reason. In the contrast, the contrast could not be more real. It is grueling to say no to yourself. It is crushing to submit to Jesus. Now, I know that can be hard because we want to say Jesus lifts our burdens and Jesus gives us delight, and all those things are true, and, and there's no one worth following after more than following Jesus, but the reality is, is following Jesus is hard. Following Jesus will be like his path to suffering at times. We can get to the point where we ask ourselves, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is Jesus really worth following? And the transfiguration, my friends, is a certain, yes, Jesus is worth following. It is the revelation from God that Jesus Christ is worth following with all of your life. It is a certain revelation from God that Jesus is worth following for all of your life. The contrast could not be more clear against the dark backdrop of self-denial and cross-bearing and suffering of many things to the brilliance and radiance and gleaming glory that we see here of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is worth following. And we'll learn that. We'll learn that this evening, that the transfiguration teaches us that though it is hard to follow Jesus, Jesus is worth following. And he's worth following for several reasons. There's two tonight that I'd like to look at in this text. And, and Luke really gives us to us that Jesus is worth following because he is God. We're going to see that first. And then secondly, Jesus is worth following because of his word, because of his certain word. And so God's revelation of Jesus Christ demonstrates that regardless of the hardship, Regardless of the burden that you must bear in this life, Jesus is greater, and Jesus is worth more, and Jesus is worth following. So 
the apostles saw human limits and transferred those human limits to Jesus. We saw that really at the feeding of the 5,000. They had even experienced some of the power and the authority that Jesus had. And yet when, when 5,000 plus people came to them hungry and they didn't know what to do, they kind of looked at Jesus and said, what are we supposed to do? They transferred their human limits onto the limits of Jesus Christ. And the transfiguration teaches us that we must not transfer those kind of human limits to Jesus Christ. Certainly, Jesus Christ is fully human, but the transfiguration reminds us and reveals to Peter, James, and John in specific that Jesus Christ is different, that he is other. And it really pulls back and reveals to us that Jesus Christ is fully God. And Jesus is worth following, my friends, because he is fully God. He is worth following today because he is fully God. And so don't transfer our own limits, our own human limits, onto Jesus. I have a two-year-old, and um, my girls this summer have really enjoyed going in and out of the house and in and out of the house, and I can kind of hear my grandfather uh, who, who is no longer with me, but I can hear him saying, don't slam the screen door. Just every time my screen door gets slammed, I can, I can hear that. He used to always tell that to me. And I, I suppose I'll probably get that way too. I think I'm already that way inside. And, and I have a two-year-old that cannot really, it, it, it's a harder, higher handle and cannot really open the screen door by herself. And my five-year-old kind of uh, walks ahead and, and paves the way. And my uh, little Liliana, my two-year-old, she's just following right and left. And she wants to go where Stella goes. And they want to play together and all these things. And Stella forgets that, that Liliana can't let herself in. And so Stella will just go on ahead 5,000 miles per hour. And the screen door will sh slam shut right before Liliana can actually get into the house. And that will cause essentially a nuclear meltdown. No matter what happens, all right, no matter if I'm five feet away, it is just all cry, all tears. And, and Liliana just can't get in, and that, that really upsets her. And, and, and for a moment, she's transferring, uh, even though her daddy's right next to her and, and can open up the door, she's transferring her limitations to everyone else and everything else. I can't get in, and there's nothing else to do about it but to cry. And so uh, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting obstacle. But, you know, we do that as adults all the time. We do that as teenagers. We do that as, as, as others, right, that aren't two, where, where we, we really do tend to transfer our own limitations onto other people. And I believe we even tend to do that with God. I think that that's very clear here in Luke chapter 9, that the apostles transferred the limitations of themselves to Jesus. And what Luke and what through the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us is that there is absolutely no limitation to God. If God wants to accomplish something, he will do it. He can do it, and he has all the power to do that, and that is true for our great Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, we tend to, to um, look at people's prayer requests and say, you know what, there's no way. There's absolutely no way that 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 prayer request is going to get answered that way. Or we look at someone in town, one of our friends, and we say, that probably is going to be the last person in the world to get saved. Or, or we say, you know what, God can always accomplish anything, but... Dot, dot, dot. And so we have those same limitations, I believe. Same roadblocks. Same situations that seem bleak to us. But really... Luke teaches us here that that's not Jesus. Verse 29, and while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, became other. 
quite frankly, in the Greek. And his clothing became white and gleaming, gleaming like lightning. That word kind of has a, 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 a sparkling, dazzling lightning effect to Jesus's appearance. And one of the amazing things to being an eyewitness of Jesus was you got to walk with Christ, you got to talk with him, you got to learn from him, and he demonstrated that, that he had power that was not earthly. But it was easy for even the disciples to transfer their limitations onto Jesus. I mean, think about when Jesus was asleep and the boat was uh, seemingly going to be capsized and, and, and the apostles said, what are we going to do? Well, they had God right there. Of course, we say, Jesus could do anything, but in the moment, when it seemed so bleak, when it seemed so dismal, when the situation seemed so helpless, uh, the, 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 the overwhelming nature of those obstacles really were so big that they forgot to look at who Jesus was. When Jesus came walking on water, and even though Peter is, 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 is enjoying that kind of success, his faith, is, is doubted and 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 he lost sight. Why? Because obstacles tend to be so much bigger to us than they really are to God. In fact, they're not obstacles at all. And so we understand that um, Jesus took his closest disciples here, Peter, John, and James. We understand uh, that they were the inner circle of the inner circle, and he showed them what they. Uh, see with their eyes in terms of looking at Jesus is not all that they should see. And I'm not speaking in terms of a mystical, kind of abstract, kind of impressionistic uh, way. I'm not, I'm not speaking of some sort of esoteric, uh, quasi-gnostic, if you, <laughs> you know what that means, to, 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 to the understanding of who Jesus is. No, this is, this is a revelational reality of Jesus. There's, there's nothing mystical about who Jesus is here in Luke, in the transfiguration. In fact, it is, it is going to be like peeling back the curtain and God revealing for us in a very a sure, uh, physical, sight way that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. And so the transfiguration demonstrates that Jesus has always been and always will be God regardless of his human appearance He's certainly fully man. Don't misunderstand me. But he is certainly, certainly fully God. And sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that. And so we see that in his appearance. In Mark chapter 9, uh, his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, verse 3 says, as no launderer or no bleaching agent on earth can ever whiten them. In Matthew chapter 17, Matthew says, and he was transfigured before them. He was literally, that's the word, metamorphosized, metamorphosis, where we think of the, the butterfly. He was changed before them, and his face shone like the sun, kind of like the, the solar rays just whipping out of the core of the sun, just gleaming and glistening. And his garments became as white as light. We know that this is really a call from the Old Testament of who God was, that God is light. Moses experiences God and, 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 and his face shone because of God's brilliance and radiance. And, and Moses, the second time, sees God in Exodus chapter 34, and, and he can't see the full, full face of God. He can only see the backside of God because of God's brilliance. 
So as much as we love and adore our Christ, we cannot fully comprehend just how magnificent he is, just how loving he is, just how undeserving of him we are. And that's what the transfiguration tells us, teaches us, is that there is always so much more to Jesus than, than we can fully even comprehend right now. Think about your love for him a year ago. And then some of you who have been in the Lord for longer, maybe two years, maybe ten years, think about your love for him ten years ago. And hopefully you, like me, have grown, not perfectly, not all the time, consistently, but grown in your love for who Jesus is to you because of who he's revealed himself to be and how he's changed your heart. Our love for him must continue to grow. And so... We cannot be bogged down by limitations that we assign to anyone, including Jesus. But we must continue to grow in our love and understanding of who he is. And quite frankly, this is the next step for the apostles. Is Jesus just tells them that he's about to suffer many things, and they don't quite get it. And they're not going to get it until after it happens, quite frankly. We see that in the gospel account. But what we do see is that Jesus is doing everything that he can to show them that the God of heaven even comes down and says, this is my son, my beloved, my, my unique, my chosen. He does everything he can to help them on their journey of, of understanding Jesus more, growing, not putting limits on him. And so we see that we ought not put limits on Jesus. Jesus' human appearance was a, was a limitation at times. But Jesus' association can also be a limit at times. And we see that here uh, in verse 30 and verse 31. Associations can be a liability. They can be beneficial. It really depends on your standing and the standing of those that you're going to be associating with. So we have to ask ourselves a question here in verse 30. Why in the world is Moses and Elijah seen talking with Jesus? What is the whole point of Moses and Elijah? Certainly they represent something. Uh, and they do, I, I believe. But I, I also want to be clear to make sure that we understand that there's nothing here that says that they're ghostly. There's nothing here that says it was like them. This is Moses and Elijah in bodily form, I believe. And it's a, what we would call maybe a, a, an intermediate, intermediate, an intermediary body. All right? it's, it's, it's not necessarily their resurrected body yet, but it is a, it is a body form. Elijah, quite frankly, uh, didn't even die, right? He was, he was translated, he was, he was privately raptured to heaven, and, and Moses, uh, Moses had a unique death that we'll talk about in a second. But these are uh, bodily form, these are bodily, these are Moses and Elijah. And why, I guess, we have to ask, are these two Old Testament prophets uh, named and associated and appear here with Jesus? Well, there's no debate my friends, that Moses is really the beginning of the law. He's the one who receives the law. He is really the representation of, of that part of the covenant with, with God's people. And so Moses makes sense. And Elijah is interesting because he is mentioned in the last two verses of the Old Testament. And he is one that is becoming a figure of the hope to come, the, the future hope for Israel. And in fact, both Moses and Elijah are, are mentioned in the last three verses of the Old Testament in Malachi. And so these figures stand, quite frankly, as, as bookends. 
as important uh, realities to who God has given to give the law and the prophets to give the conditions of a relationship with him and the future hope to come. And it's important to remember, too, in our conversation, in our discussion with Luke here in chapter 9, that there were rumors abounding. It was the popular rumor of the day that both Moses and Elijah could be Jesus. Uh, When Herod asks, who is this man? There are three options that are given to him that he articulates. It could be, Jesus could be John the Baptist, though he was he was uh, just put to death. It could be, some say, Elijah, and it could be a prophet of old, kind of like Moses. And the same is true when Jesus, after the feeding of the 5,000, asks the apostles, who do people say that I am? And in verse 19 of chapter 9 here, Peter says, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say that you're Elijah, and some say that you're a prophet of old, like Moses. So it's not surprising, quite frankly, to see Moses and Elijah show up here. But what do they teach us? Well, it's interesting what what happens with their association. Peter uh, says, okay, you know what? They're they're here. Uh, We need to get out these booths. We need to get out these tents, these tabernacles, the the text says. And we need to um, honor them. And it, quite frankly, could be... uh, Peter trying to have his own private uh, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, which is essentially the, uh, the Jewish festival that, that honored um, God's presence and therefore God's provision for Israel. And so Peter may be making a statement here saying, okay, uh, three significant uh, people, let's, let's all honor them, Peter, uh, uh, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. But what is true is, it couldn't be more clear that while Jesus is associating with Moses and Elijah, he is not limited to their association. He is not to condescend solely to them. He is not merely a prophet of old or a prophet of future hope to come. He is, according to God's voice from heaven, the chosen one. Jesus doesn't compare. In fact, when Peter starts speaking these words, Peter really kind of gets interrupted, and, and it's kind of like, like having a discussion in the office where everyone's trying to come up with a solution to a problem, and you chime in and you say, here's solution X, Y, and Z, and people just kind of look and continue on with the conversation. Obviously, that wasn't a good solution, at least in the esteem of your peers. They don't even mention it. They just kind of keep on going on, and there's, there's really nothing here uh, that happens. Peter says, hey, let's, let's go ahead and set up booths and tabernacles for these three in verse 33, and before, or as Peter was saying this, a cloud formed. It's just kind of like, let's, not a good idea, Peter. We don't exactly understand all that Peter meant, but not a good idea. Not a good idea at all. Why? Because Jesus cannot be compared He cannot be compared with Moses and Elijah. He cannot be compared with his other associates like Judas or even the apostles for that matter. He he can't be compared with you or with me. In one sense, we are incredibly thankful that he does dwell with mankind and that he did associate with all these people and more. Yet in another sense, it's easy for us to transfer the liability of his association it's easy for us to, to see that 
Jesus is around people all the time that have failed and and certainly in our church life as we as we try to live for Jesus we are going to be people that fail but we must remember that Christ never fails and he never disappoints and though he was with Moses and Elijah and though both of them had uh, some redemptive value to what they were trying to accomplish as God was trying to accomplish through them the giving of the law and the giving of the the Old Testament uh, hope to come through a Messiah that that merely listening to Moses and merely following Elijah quite frankly wasn't sufficient it wasn't enough they were only pointing to someone to come and if we're looking for people in our lives right now to be the savior of our life we're going to find that it's not going to satisfy it's not going to work sometimes we put people on the same in the same standard as Jesus we're and we're going to be disappointed every time when we put Jesus when we put people on the same level as Jesus we've got to stop that and i'm going to speak specifically to our church our church people are going to fail i'm going to fail and if you're going to hold me to Jesus's standard i'm going to fail so stop it stop it and stop Stop holding to people a standard that just is not true or ever going to be true this side of heaven. But the converse is also true. Sometimes we put Jesus on the same standard as people that fail us. And equally, we've got to stop that. And here, my friends, as Peter, James, and John look at Jesus, they're getting a glimpse of him like no other. And, and, there, and, and, and finally, there's, there's the visual cue that, that Jesus cannot be, tra- his, that limitations of, 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 of humanity cannot be transferred to Jesus. He's working through you and me. But nonetheless, we're going to fail. So stop ha- holding us to the same kind of standard. Stop putting Jesus on the standard of people. Jesus never fails. That's the, per- the point of verse 33. And as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, hey, let's make three tabernacles. And Luke gives us this, this, uh, this narrative. He says, not really realizing what he was saying. We can hold people up who are very significant, but Jesus is greater. You know, I hope you have a high regard for uh, everyone in this church, and I hope you have a high regard for the the leadership that hopefully God has appointed to this church. And, and I hope that there's, there's a high standard for them. But it can't be the Jesus standard, is my point. Because Jesus is greater than Moses. He is greater than Elijah. He is greater than the apostles. He is greater than you. He is greater than me. And he is the only one, after the cloud dissipates, Moses and Elijah no longer are there. It was silly to have three booths. Why? Because there's only one, and that is Jesus. And so Jesus cannot be limited by his association. He cannot be limited by his appearance, and he cannot be limited by the circumstances. Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus, and they're talking with him in verse 30, about, verse 31, about his departure. About his, literally the Greek word there is exodus. It would be very different 
in Moses' exodus, Moses' departure, Moses' departure, um, really no one really knows exactly what happens. Jude kind of indicates to us in the book of Jude that, uh, that uh, Michael, the archangel, and, and, uh, and Satan were kind of fighting over Moses a little bit, and, and, and God himself um, buries Moses' body and and, and no one really knows to this day where Moses' body is held. And as I've already mentioned, Elijah uh, had a private rapture. And um, they're both talking with Jesus, and they have a departure to talk about. Elijah had quite a departure. Moses had an interesting departure. But Jesus is going to have a departure like no other. We know that that is specific to the event that is, that, that is his passion that is to be accomplished at Jerusalem, verse 31 says. And what's interesting, and we must, we must just tuck away, is that the apostles have to start to come to understand that the suffering Messiah that was talked about last week in, in, in Luke on the cost of discipleship and, and the reality that Jesus' departure now is all foreordained, it's all planned. It's all part of God's redemptive plan. Just like Moses led Egypt out, uh, excuse me, Israel out of Egypt. And just as he's been working throughout Israel's history to bring them to terms with who he is. So now, another unfolding event of God's great redemptive plan is Jesus himself. And they're talking about a departure like none other. And the book of Hebrews really stacks Jesus Christ up to Moses to the prophets like Elijah, to angels, to the law, to the high priest. And in all these cases, the question is, is Jesus Christ superior? And the answer is absolutely. But the beautiful thing is the the author of Hebrews doesn't just say, yes, Jesus is superior. The author of Hebrews gives a, a picture of how just significantly superior Jesus Christ is to all these things that have come before. And that picture is verbalized this way. Jesus Christ, over and over again in Hebrews, is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven. Jesus Christ is seated there. He is not threatened. He has nothing else to do. He is seated there. It is finished. His departure has accomplished everything. And he sits at the privileged position to the throne of the person of the one of the God of the majesty of heaven. And so the question is, is Jesus Christ worth following? And the answer is absolutely. His associations do not limit him. His physical human appearance does not limit him. And neither do the circumstances like as we're talking about here the circumstances of his departure. In fact, his departure merely indicates that he is seated on the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven. And there's nothing more for Jesus to do. Jesus' followers must pack this away. Certainly, this is going to be true in Peter's life when Peter goes through the Passion Week and denies Jesus three times. And Jesus throw, and Peter throws in the towel in John chapter 21, John chapter 22, and Jesus has to make a, an appearance to Peter specifically. And say, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? 
Is it worth, Peter, following me? And Peter has to look back on this occasion and he has to say, yeah, yeah, it is worth the hardship. What is the point of the transfiguration? The point of the transfiguration, my friends, is that Jesus is worth following. When the whole world is crashing down, Jesus is still on the throne. And I think we could take great comfort in the things that are going on right now. That it is not out of control for King Jesus. It is not threatening him being seated on the throne. And so, my friends, it is our task today to look and to focus on the very vision that is given to us by the gospel accounts, the three gospel accounts of who Jesus Christ is. He's not merely man, and it is not out of his control. Jesus Christ is God. That's why, my friends, it is worth following Jesus Christ. But it's also worth following Jesus Christ because of the word, because of the word that he gives us. It is worth following Jesus Christ because he's God, but also because of his word. And we're going to see that here at the end. If Jesus' transfiguration is the visual climax of the narrative, that's the, that's the visual light that the apostles, Peter, James, and John, see. The voice from heaven is the audible climax in verse 35. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. And that's the other main idea. That's the other main point that we need to investigate tonight. And we're going to do that quickly. That though it is hard to follow Jesus, we can because of his word. We must. His word guides us through the unknown. Look at verse 33. As these were leaving him, that's, that's uh, Moses and Elijah. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles. And everyone stay here. Let's, let's, let's honor you. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you. Not realizing what he was saying. Peter had no clue. Luke gives us really two ways in which Peter had no clue. Peter had no clue. First, he transparently transparently makes that commentary, not realizing in verse 33 what Peter was saying. Peter didn't know. But also, as I mentioned before, the comment is skipped over. Verse 35, or verse 34, while he was saying this, in other words, there's really no point to what Peter's saying. <laughs> it's no good. It's wrong. So while he's saying this, God brings, God comes with his cloud. His, his, his sure presence. And, uh, and the comment is skipped over. Regardless of what Peter's trying to indicate here, uh, I think the, the, the answer is it's wrong. It's wrong. And so Peter was ignorant. He was, he was not knowledgeable about what was... He missed it. He missed the point. And so when we find ourselves like Peter, getting it wrong, missing the point, not knowing what's going on, not fully understanding, what do we do? Verse 35, listen to... Him. Listen to him. His word not only guides us when we don't know, but his word guides us when we are afraid. Look at verse 34. While he was saying this, cloud form began to overshadow them, and that gave them fear. That gave Peter, John, and James fear. They were afraid as they entered the cloud, as they were engulfed by the cloud. It's straightforward. And so what do we do when we're afraid? Verse 35. Listen to him. Not only does 
He guides us when we're afraid, but he guides us when we are alone. Look at verse 36. He guides us when we are alone, and he guides us alone, I should say. So in other words, look at verse 36. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. There's nothing else. There's no Moses. There's no Elijah. There's, there's no need now for the law, for the prophets. All these things had their place, the book of Hebrews tells us. But Jesus is superior to all these things. Jesus and Jesus alone, God says, listen to him. His word guides us alone. Alone. I want to look at two brief passages tonight in conclusion. Turn over to John chapter 1 since it's close by here in Luke. John writes some 40, 50 years later, I believe, and and so this is after the fact, and I think verse 14 really does allude to the transfiguration. I think it has to. John was there. John was an eyewitness. And what does he say in verse 14 of John chapter 1? And the Word became flesh, which is an interesting concept, when John has to have ringing in his ear, listen to him, the very Word. Listen. Listen to him. Became flesh and dwelt among us. And what? We beheld, we saw with our eyes his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John remembers the glory, and it impacted him, it influenced the rest of his life. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, turn there. Turn there and look at verse 16 in in a more explicit uh, uh, allusion to the transfiguration. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. In other words, words, there's a lot of ideas out there. But there is only one and one alone to listen to him. The words again have to be ringing into Peter's throughout Peter's ears and life. So he says, We did not follow clearly devised tales when we had made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of power? What kind of coming? But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on that holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining into a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Listen to him. For no prophecy was ever made but an act of human will, but, by, but when men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You see, the greatest need that you and I have, because it is going to be hard to follow Jesus, because we are going to have to deny ourselves, and we're going to struggle with that. It's a struggle to say no. It's an absolute agony at times to say, no, Steve, no, Steve, no, Steve. No way. It is crushing To live your life with Jesus as your Lord. Yes, 
He removes our burdens and lifts us, and we delight and rejoice in him. But make no mistake about it, it is cross-bearing. The greatest need that you and I have is assurance. Is assurance. My friends, the transfiguration assures us. It gives us confidence. It confirms that Jesus is worth following because he's God. He is worth following because of his word. And there is no one on earth greater before or after Jesus. There is no one on earth that has lived every moment of, of, of every day, of every second of his life where God can say to him, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He can't say that to me. He can't say that to you. He can't say that to men and women better than you and me. There's only one that can please him. And that is Jesus Christ. That is Jesus, his son. And so his son, therefore, has reliable words. Follow him, my friend. Follow him. Peter closes with this application and he says it's a first hand witness to Jesus' glory. And that's in this is in I'm reading from second or second Peter chapter one, verse nineteen. He says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. And the morning star arises in your hearts. It may be dark out there. It may be dark in this old world, but the day is coming, and Peter, John, and James have seen a glimpse, just a glimpse, but a glimpse that assures them, that echoes throughout the rest of their lives, and as we see, they write about it later. But it was not just enough to remind them, to assure them, there is no other like Jesus. There is no other worth following. There is no one else who we can gladly say no, no to ourselves, gladly take up the cross and say, you know what? It is absolutely worth it. It is absolutely worth it. And the transfiguration gives us that assurance. Jesus is worth it. No matter what happens, no matter what is going on, no matter what we see and how we feel, my friends, Jesus is God. And Jesus' word is more sure, more reliable. And so it is a plea for us tonight to continue to follow him. Good night.